Welcome to the One Track Mind podcast. I'm John Miller, and in this episode, my guest is engine calibration engineer Robin Romish. If you're curious about the guys who plug their laptop into a car to fix it and make it faster, this is your episode. Robin talks about the different approaches to tuning streetcars with custom hardware, like an aftermarket supercharger kit, versus tuning a race car and the different goals and expectations that come along with that process. We talk about hacking into ECUs and how powerful software can be in determining not only the horsepower output, but also the price of a car. He talks about setting a record on Pike's Peak a couple of years ago and the thought process that goes into making an engine and a car work at extreme altitudes where it's difficult even for humans to breathe, much less an engine. We get a little philosophical. We talk about the future of internal combustion engines, not only in motorsport, but in consumer cars. And if you want to argue about any of this with Robin via Twitter, you can find him at rromish. That's at R-R-O-E-M-I-S-C-H. This episode is brought to you by Socket Roll, the ultimate in portable socket storage. The Socket Roll is a patented, durable, fluid-resistant, portable socket storage solution that keeps your sockets organized and accessible. Great for the home garage, workshop, at the track, or on the boat. Available online at socketroll.com. Make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. If you're an Apple user, leave us a five-star rating and a quick review on iTunes. It helps us grow our audience. Follow us on Instagram for photos of guests and show previews at One Track Mind Show. Enjoy the episode with calibration engineer Robin Romish. Oh, let's just start this whole thing over. Here. <laughs> <clears throat> Back to the beginning. So, Robin Romish. Engine calibration engineer. What would you? What's your title here? What are we going to call your episode? That's probably what you'd put in LinkedIn to find a whole bunch of people that do sort of the same thing. What's um, your Twitter bio say? Other than professional skier, which I'm, I don't, I don't buy that for a second. No, that's the joke. Uh, I think it says professional skier, amateur small business owner, and that's pretty much um, how the focus has gone so far. And uh, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, calibration, calibration engineer, uh, race engineer. I'm an engineer, not by uh, not by schooling, uh, whatsoever, uh, but by by experience in trade. And I, there's some people where that doesn't really fly with. But uh, yeah, the general general term I would say is engineer. Gotcha. So you got your degree from the streets, so correct, to speak. Correct. Correct. The street so, the street knowledge really uh, really helps. So how does an how does an engine calibration engineer what what is what does an engine calibration engineer do? Um, in old days, you'd be turning screws on carburetors, and you'd be uh, smelling spark plugs and, and, and reading how things are running. And these days, we have computers, which makes all this stuff fantastic and, uh, and, and pretty interesting to dive deep into. And that's kind of that's how I got started with it, because I was always a computer geek. So it's a technical, ter- technical term for a tuner. Correct. I mean, that's... Correct. So, you, I mean, you turn, tune on race cars, street cars, street cars, everything in between, custom projects, everything in between, uh, some really weird stuff. It's you, uh, you specialize in certain brands. Or- I do. So mostly German, and the reason it's mostly German is we have um, these wonderful computers that are made by Bosch, and Bosch sets kind of a, a framework up, and then a lot of the same, uh, a lot of the manufacturers will use the same framework and change it slightly from from make to make or um, or even engine to engine. But once you learn um, how these things operate and the strategies they use and the, and the way to uh, kind of delve into them deeper, you can then apply that to something uh, completely different that may run the same ECU. So, I mean, and you're talking now about 
streetcars and race cars because they're streetcars and race cars. They're, they're all running off of the same same engine computers, same software. Um, I guess is it the same approach to tuning a race car versus tuning a, a street car? No, and, you know and, it's it's funny because the some some of the things that you can uh, get away with on the street versus the track are completely different. But then again, your goal is completely different. Sure. Um, you, okay. you tune a street car usually within an inch of its life because it never sees the kind of conditions that, you know, you and I w- would expect on the racetrack. Um, on the street, you can get away with a lot more than, than what you can get away on the racetrack. The racetrack shows you the weaknesses in your, in your tuning and your strategies because it's the hardest place to make a car live. And on the street, you know, it runs around on the same kind of fuel all the time. And, you know, and it's not at like peak performance. Exactly. You, you, you need, you need like stoplight to stoplight or like, but on know. the flip side of that coin, you have drivability issues that are not tolerable in a street car. We're in a race car. You're pulling out of the pits. It's a little jerky here and there and you, okay, no more problem. Drive through it. It's not an issue on the street. That's a huge cause for concern. And you'll sit there trying to make sure that that doesn't happen because the, the street car guys don't tolerate that stuff. Gotcha. So, so talk about some of the stuff that you've been working on on the, on the streetcar side. I mean, what does your day to day business look like? Cause I know, you know, I know you do both you know, and your business is race cars and street cars, but you know, your business, um, seems to be mostly street cars. And then you kind of, you know, the race cars, the, the passion, that's what we all love to do. Exactly. Um, it's the race cars is where, um, you know, I don't mind the late nights and the crappy travel and the, and the seedy hotels because we're at the racetrack and we're, and we're, Sure. All, you know, chasing the common, the common goal there. And it's but, fantastic. But the streetcar stuff kind of pays the bills and, and keeps, stuff the wor- keeps the world keeps turning. my lights on. Correct. Yeah. Um, I do a lot of, a lot of consulting and private labeling for a couple of different companies. And what that allows me to do is, um, not be involved with the day-to-day side of their business, do the R and D hand them a product, a turnkey product that then they can go and take and sell, uh, to their customers. And what it'll allow them to do is look like they've got this stuff in house. Uh, and, and most of them do. I spend a lot of time traveling and making sure that this stuff works. It's not all remote. Um, but at the end of the day, they have a product that they didn't have before and they're able to control, um, certain things about the other products they're selling. Uh, my company course logic, um, is, is what I've been building. Um, a couple of local, these, uh, California brands I work with VF engineering. Uh, they're up in Anaheim and they do a whole lot of, uh, high end, um, Audi, Lamborghini, BMW hardware kits, and they make these pretty amazing hardware kits being being turbo kits, superchargers is their their thing. Okay. Uh, they've been doing, they've been doing this stuff for almost 20 years and they make these amazing, uh, these amazing pieces, uh, and they bolt them on and then, you know, the car has to work. It has to fire up on the key. Uh, no hiccups, no nothing. And they no sell these things, lights. correct, because it's okay. a very turnkey product that they want to sell. Uh, and so I'll come in and I will handle, you know, all of their, uh, their development so that they can sell this stuff and they ship it anywhere in the world. They plug it in, flashes through the port, uh, and off the customer goes. And there's really not a whole lot of, uh, of babysitting with these. Most of these um, these big horsepower R8s and Huracans and whatnot, they're usually all turbo, but they're usually either custom tuned each individual one, or it's a a built motor or some you know big dollar uh, build. And what they do something and they do it really well is you open the box, you bolt it on, and it it's it. It's reliable. It just works. It just works. Right. Gotcha. Right. And so the, and that's your job is to make sure that, you know, when they turn the key every time there's no check engine light and it passes California smog emissions. It runs on 91 pump fuel. You can take it to thermal and beat on it all day in the heat and the desert. You can drive it, uh, up to, up to Washington, um, in the snow. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, and these cars have come a long way. 
Uh, we've got a lot of guys that do some really, really dumb stuff with these kits, and <laughs> it's uh, it's amazing to me sometimes that it doesn't break. But I guess that means somebody's doing their job. On the flip side, the the racing stuff that you do, talk about that a little bit and the difference between the two and and your the the challenges are different. Like I was saying, it's uh, it's a very um, you have a group of people. Everybody has their job. Some people have more more than one, and they're all looking at that same checkered flag, and nobody's mad at you if something goes wrong as long as you don't let it happen again and as long as you make some forward progress and working towards that is why i love working in racing and it's um it, it's not always as as lucrative as the street cars uh but it's where i'd rather spend my time because it really it's it's right well and so it's some a of focus, the you know and, and some of the f- i guess freedoms or some of the um the ability that maybe somebody like you has had in in the past to really make a difference in a in a race program gt4 cars and and tcr cars and the world of um, factory built homologated, um, kind of the, don't, oh, you're going the, there already, the, right? The don't, we're diving right into well, this. Well, absolutely. The, the don't touch it mentality, we're delivering it as is. Um, so it doesn't leave a whole lot of room for, you know, the, the kind of tuning that, that you've done in the past on like a, a home built, you know, the, the way that race cars used to be, you, you needed to build it, you needed to tune it. And when, like you talked about when stuff breaks, because you're you're pushing past the edge of what the the tolerances might be, you learn from it, you rebuild, you tune it again, and make it make it better. And and that whole process, um, you know, at least at, at the the pro level of these homologated factory built race cars, you know, that is it fair to say that that has taken some. It's kind of tied one hand behind your back. It has. It's it's forced me to change my business model a little bit um, and kind of look at things from a, a how do I stay relevant in this sport when the cars show up and you roll them off the trailer uh, and the motor's already been tested and, and tuned by some guy in, in Germany. It's already done. Um, that's why you buy the turnkey race car. And, and so you have these, uh, you have these guys that don't want to mess with that stuff and the budgets of the teams that do have to mess with that stuff and have gone through these programs and, you know, started from scratch with a car that was not a race car. That's the challenge. And that's, um, that's kind of, it's not gone now, but I, I definitely see less and less of it. And the more that we have these classes like GT4 and TCR, where the cars are delivered and, and you basically figure out where your setup window is on them and kind of go from there. And you're not chasing problems. You're not chasing gremlins. You're not figuring out why you took a, you took a door module out of the car and now it won't start. Um, all the electronics kind of gremlins that you would work through in a new program and a new motor or power plant aren't there. And so you end sure. up, you have your focus now on engineering the car, making sure it runs well, uh, and, and driving the truck to so the racetrack. Is, is it, there, is there still space for someone like you, um, to, to operate and to, to, you know, to have a, a business or have an impact with your skill set in the world of, of pro racing today? Cause obviously, you know, the, the pro racing side, that that's one story. Um, you know, there's still a lot of, of home built race cars being raced all over the world and, and there are non homologated, non, uh, uh, spec classes that still do allow for tuners and, and encourage, you know, like time attack and, and exactly, you know, cl- exactly. club level stuff, club where, level stuff where it's still absolutely necessary. And it can be the difference between, you know, a, a good motor in your car and a, and a package that doesn't work. Sure. So is that where you found yourself kind of migrating or, or doing, is there, is there doing still... more of that? Um, doing more of that. I've uh, just kind of gotten involved with, uh, with the TCR program. 
Um, we're doing some work with the Audis and Volkswagens. Um, and I'm, you know, a lot of these guys uh, that are running these cars come from different platforms, come from other cars, um, other series. And these TCR cars are just awesome, by the way. Um, they're just, they're, they're the coolest little purpose-built race car. And working from, we, I worked on the, uh, the Compass 360 program when we were, Building these ST cars from streetcars. Prior to prior to TCR, TCR existing. This is the, so, the Audi S3s that right, they we built have, in we, their garage. We have the RS3 LMS now, which is the TCR car. Um, and and prior to that, we we tried to make kind of a TCR car well, so, out of a streetcar. So yeah, so talk. That's actually I'm glad you brought that up. Talk about kind of that. I mean, that's one of the last. Um, you know, pro level, you know, pre TCR, build it at home, develop it, work out the kinks. And, and I, I wasn't involved in that program, but I know those com- the compass guys really well. And I know you and I talked a little bit through that process of, of what that was like. Um, and from what I remember, there was a lot of, uh, just really frustrating, uh, weekends trying to work around the electronics and, uh, but, but talk about that, that process and what that was like trying to make a car, um, work on the racetrack when it wasn't designed to do that. And, and you're kind of trying to trick it into doing things. And, you know, that's where somebody like you does come into play and, and can provide huge value um, in, in kind of reverse engineering this stuff. Is that, that's exactly, that's exactly right. Um, and figuring out how to keep that car happy at the racetrack when it doesn't want to be at the racetrack was the key, uh, was the key with that. And, um, you're not going to you're not going to see as much of that anymore because the budget that was put into that car to get where it was uh was massive and the effort from a lot of really smart people uh Marcus DeLeon you know we had we had Carl Thompson who god bless his heart was not giving up at us and we, we couldn't get this thing going and these are you know uh these are these teams are not dumb man i mean Compass has quite a few championships sitting on the wall and we really struggled with that for a while to get it to get it rolling. Was that a case of you know maybe underestimating the challenge? Underestimating the challenge, and that car, especially that car, has some idiosyncrasies that make it kind of an odd race car. Um, on paper, it looked like the one to have. We we're four wheel drive, turbocharged, two liter. Um, oh man, that thing's going to be awesome! And then we've realized that it's basically a front wheel drive car with a diff in the back that does stuff now and then. Um, and, and trying to figure out how to set it up, whether it's a four-wheel drive car or do you set it up like a front-wheel drive car. Um, it's a streetcar gearbox. It's a streetcar engine. Uh, it's got it's got streetcar ABS. And there's a lot of stuff. All those computers have to be talking to each other and happy with each other and happy with what they're saying to each other. And when one of those pieces isn't there, you have no ABS or you have traction control intervening. Uh, and all these were these issues were happening in bad times and bad spots. And, and, and it's just, it didn't, it wasn't a car that wanted to be raced and it wasn't also, it was also a car that was not really supposed to be raced. And so when you go back to the manufacturer or, or you go back to, you know, someone helping you through the program and you go, Hey, what about this? And they go, "Mm, sorry, I can't really help you with this. Tough shit. Yeah. And you you chose to correct. Yeah. And that's where the reverse engineering, uh, comes into play with this stuff. And man, it's, um, watching these newer cars just hit the ground running and and there's really no effort to to work through that like i said it frees up your resources to go run the car properly and engineer the the setup and the things you need to to do to make the car run up front and you're not worried about the motor yeah um 
these kind of things, I think we're, we're still going to see. I mean, there's tons of these cars running around. Uh, all these old GS cars, you know, that were like purpose built that have some crazy motor and an awesome standalone Motec ECU on it or a Bosch ECU. Uh, so much effort has went into the making those things. And, you know, they're not relevant anymore, but they're still around. Are they're you going to see still great race cars? Still yeah. great race cars. And it's not that you can't do it, it's just that the barrier of entry is so much lower now with this stuff. You don't have to have six really smart guys working all night long on it. Um, you just need a. You know, yeah, a couple of good guys to show up and run the car. Time and energy on just track, running the car. Yeah. Which is where you want to be and not dealing with issues, not dealing with problems. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think it's the future of the sport because you can't have somebody show up and expect to foot the budget for a, a quarter million dollar ST car anymore. It's just, it, it doesn't work. Sure. And, you know, you, we saw the same thing in GS with the, with, with the factory programs and these crazy cars. And that's... It's just changing a bit, I think. I think that kind of paints the picture for us of what, what we're dealing with, you know, in in today's, you know, race car realm. And you talked a little bit about the streetcar stuff, but um, I'm interested, how does somebody like you get started? How do you learn how to do what you do? Because I, I look at it as like kind of a, a black art. I mean, you're you kind of like, you're like the mad scientist. You plug in with your computer and boom, the car is now faster and more reliable and gets everything done. And like, where do you pick up this or develop this skill set of, you know, plugging into a car and, and talking to it and, and, uh, making it do what you want, you know, engine wise and, and all the rest. I mean, where, where does that, where does that start for you? For me, it started, um, tinkering with, with stuff when I was, when I was little, anything mechanical, I like to take apart and figure out how it worked. Um, that went to small engines. I took the lawnmower apart and started figuring out why, it, why it does what it does. Um, and then it went to my friend's go-kart and I'm like, how do we make this faster? And I, and it, you know, you look back and you're like, geez, I, I was an idiot back then, but no, that's just how it is. And yeah. the, the more you keep at this stuff, um, the, the more grasp of the mechanical side. And I, I think that what a lot of people overlook from, you know, every tuner with a laptop, you know, walking around, walking around pit lane, um, it's easy to go, oh, he's the guy with the laptop, but that guy also needs to know the fun the fundamentals of internal combustion engines. You had to blow up a lot of stuff. You got to blow up a lot of stuff. You got to figure out why your ignition timing is set at the way it is, not just that it is. You need to know why and how that's affecting other things in the motor and how that's affecting uh, heat and tolerances. And, and, and when you have a really good mechanical background and understanding of the engine, the tuning becomes not uh, not so much of a black art as just trying to work towards making the motor happy what does the motor want it it runs way better like this why does it run better like this moving through that thought process um is really really fun for me uh with this stuff back in the day when i got into this i mean your your average ecu in a car was it just not very sophisticated um that we had these awesome things called mega squirt and these were little build-it-yourself uh, EFI systems that you could wire into pretty much anything. And it's a, you know, it was a cheap standalone ECU. And I built a ton of these. I was uh, I was soldering them in college and putting them on my friends' cars and messing with them. And uh, they're 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 fantastic. And that taught me a whole lot of the the, the fundamentals. Your so, average. So, so your advice is blow up your friends. Blow stuff up your first. friends' stuff always first before you ever try it on your own on your own stuff. That's. <laughs> Um, and now you look at, you know, your average ECU in, in just a street car, forget a race car or anything high performance. It's, it's got a tricore processor in it, like your laptop. It's got, you know, enough Ram in it, um, that, 
you can just do amazing stuff with these things. They're so flexible. They're so powerful. Um, but, and but the manufacturers don't always want you like breaking into their ECUs and, and changing them. They have a vested interest in keeping guys like me out. Right. So what's how do you how do you hack your way in? I mean, that's what's that process like? Because you've got a you've got not only do you have to know how to you know, tune that motor and, and work within the parameters of whatever car you happen to be tuning, whether it's turbo, naturally aspirated, you know, German, American, you know, whatever. The, I, 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 I guess I could understand that they all have their idiosyncrasies and their, you know, their things that they like and they don't like. Um, but, but before you even get to that point, you know, especially on, on the streetcar side, when it's not a standalone, when it's not a product that's designed um, to be messed with, you know, kind of not, I mean, op- open source isn't the right word, but it's really funny. You said the open source word, uh, because that right now is kind of becoming an issue. Um, open source software and security has, has, you know, changed how, um, security issues are handled in, in it, in, in banking and in any of this stuff. When your source is open, when your source code is out for everybody to see, you can find the weaknesses and the vulnerabilities and keep track of that kind of stuff. Automotive controllers and computers from, you know, it's completely the opposite. These are documents and strategies and, um, and uh, specifications that are, I mean, kept under lock and key by the manufacturers, by the, um, by the car manufacturers and the EC manufacturers. These are the golden jewels of what they do because as soon as that gets out, it can get messed with. But if it's already out there, you know the vulnerabilities. You you secure it in a different way, and then we're kind of seeing this. Um, we're kind of seeing this now with these latest Tesla things, uh, these Tesla accidents, right? And the people are going, well, why can't you know? Should this be proprietary, or should we be all working on this stuff as an open? Should we should improve it, right? You're talking about the the um, self driving, the autopilot, autopilot accidents. accidents, and the and. You know, should we all be working together on safety features that we all talk about as a as an industry, um, as a you know, as a culture of this is changing, man. Right, and that, um, I think that's a pretty fair question and conversation to be having. I, I mean, what's what's your take on on that kind of thing? I mean, obviously, I, I think I know what you're going to say, but where do you? I mean, that that's also. I, I guess I think a little bit different than the, you know, we want to protect our, our engine source code so that, you know, if we're Audi that BMW doesn't see how we're tuning our engines right. or, or, you know, we don't, we, there's part of it too, is we don't want everybody, you know, Joe Schmo and his mom to be able to plug in and change everything. Right. Um, Audi's a perfect example of that, right? You go out and you buy a new R8, um, you, you'd go on down here to, Pacific Pacific Audi, you know, you walk in there and you buy the base model, right? The base model R8 makes four, 540 horsepower. You can also go in there and buy an R8 Plus, and that makes 610 horsepower. The engine is absolutely identical between the two cars, and they're selling you the software to unlock the power that's already in there. That's exactly why they want to make sure that people like sure. me stay out, because that's a $25,000 package at the dealership. I'll give it to you for nineteen ninety nine. <laughs> Copy that, and and it's, so that they're just protecting their their bottom line, their, 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 their bottom line, the, yeah. and also there's a lot of regulatory stuff that goes in there as well. Would you um, would you say that the average consumer understands that that that's the only difference, or or does I bet you the average buyer of that car 
doesn't want people to know that's the only difference because these guys spend that extra 25 grand and they're, you know, Hey, I got the plus I got the, and it's only software. That's the only difference. Right. You used to throw some cams in there and exhaust and change this and that. And then now it's just software and they're able to limit that motor to, you know, a certain power output and market that in certain markets um, and to certain people. And that, that gives them a lot of, uh, a lot of longevity in that car that v10 and that r8 has been around for a long time and they've slowly uncorked more and more and more of it and made sure. that available to their their dealership so, so they you're Customers. saying they they know what they're doing just a little bit they're pretty good over there <laughs> they're pretty good over there so there's there's an interest for sure in keeping this stuff tight and secure um and also like i was saying for insurance purposes for emission standards you know it's, it has to meet certain things and be relatively secure if it's so easy to hack that everybody just jumps right in there uh, and then all these cars aren't they're no longer emissions compliant um you know there's so so how much i guess my question about that was more uh, more along the lines of how much effort how much time does somebody like you spend um, and when the, when a new ECU comes out or when a new model year comes out and it's like, okay, this is obviously going to be around for the next, you know, five year, 10 year model cycle, whatever we've got to, we've got to figure out a way to, to crack into this ECU to start working on it because it's, it's a huge business opportunity for you. You know, how much uh, energy do, do you spend you know, cracking into it versus how much energy do you spend tuning it? And then, you know, once you've cracked into it, is it like, oh, on, you know, only you know how to do it? Sometimes you'll pool resources with, with you know, other businesses or other people to make this stuff easier. Um, there's a lot of guys that are way smarter than me that handle a lot of that reverse engineering and, and cracking of the protocols. Because you got to be able to read it and write to it before you can do anything else. So if you don't have that done and right. run right. So, so, I, so I remember like back in the day when I had a B5 S4 and it's like those, I mean, it's a V6 twin turbo, awesome car, huge aftermarket tuning market for that car. And the first time I you know chipped it, I mean, that's what we called it back yeah, then. Yeah, you pull the soldering you, iron out. You literally pull the ECU out of the car, physically pull it out, crack it open, and literally you pull the chip out and, and solder a new chip onto it. And that it was like labor intensive. It was like if you you pulled the wrong pin, your ECU is now brick. Those ECUs are not meant to be opened <laughs> ever. Right. And you're going in there and you're doing something very invasive and um, the, it's worth it. I mean, the benefits of that car was a rocket with a chip. Yeah, okay, so you, you do that. So um, is that process still kind of the same for the first couple times to get it get it right? But So when we have uh, the security and the technology has gone through the roof uh, since since that car was around. And so now you have bank level RSA 1024 bit security on some of these, these ECUs, they won't run code that's not signed from the manufacturer with their key. Just like you can't log into your, your Wells Fargo bank account without the right, you know, RSA key that they have your public key, your private key, just like that in the cars. Hmm. So you have to find a way around those sort of things to be able to get read and write access. It's rare that we open up an ECU anymore. Some applications still require it but you're not soldering anything. You're opening it up to get access to a little pin where you can then read and write to it. But um, it's the security is, I think, you know, it's only going to get worse. Um, and once that stuff really becomes to a point where they don't want you in there, we're not going to be able to get in there anymore. But a uh, per perfect example of why security um, or why open source and, and the security on their IP is important. 
um, you know, you asked, what do I call myself? What do I do? Pretty much nobody knew what that was until the Volkswagen diesel mess blew up two years ago. <laughs> so you were flying under the radar happily? Yeah, pretty or? much. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and now everybody was really aware that there's guys over there programming these cars to do certain things. And programming these cars to do certain things that might not always be above board. And um, I remember when I heard about that for the first time and I went, oh, man. I can't wait till everybody else gets caught too. And, you know, Volkswagen <laughs> fell on the sword, but the, the diesel regulations in the U.S. are almost impossible to meet in a streetcar. Keeping noise uh, constraints, you know, on your mind, uh, smoke, smell, um, all the stuff that it's really hard to make a diesel run like that. And when you make it run really clean, the side effect to that is some stuff you can't smell, you can't see, you can't taste it. Uh, but it's there and it's coming out of that pipe a lot and it's no longer clean. And I, you just, you can't, Volkswagen's not magic, right? They had to cheat for a reason because they're playing with the same physics sandbox that we all are. And it's really difficult to make that stuff work. And it's just come out, you know, a couple months ago, Mercedes is doing it too. Um, BMW has been doing it too. Yeah. And you just going, you know, if, if, we knew about this stuff years ago. It could have prevented a whole lot of damage to the environment. Would you have known about it? No, they'd never tell you. Yeah, no, of course not. So, they, they, I mean, the clean, quote unquote, quote unquote, clean diesel was the, I mean, the marketing I did, you, campaign. Didn't you buy one of these? Don't, got, you, don't you have two diesel <laughs> cars got, in the driveway? <laughs> we've got an Audi diesel and a BMW diesel in, in our driveway. So, yeah, I, you know, the, you can't beat the mileage, but you know, that that's the, I guess the part that nobody wanted to think about is, yeah, you know, the mileage is great and, and it seems like you're, uh, saving the environment by, you know, getting, you know, awesome gas mileage or awesome diesel mileage out of your, your car. But yeah, the, the truth is that, um, they're polluting just as much, if not more than their, uh, gasoline counterparts. And so, yeah, I've, I've you know, we've got the, the Audi settlement coming and I, I was just, you know, you talk about BMW, I, I was reading, maybe it was a month or two ago that, you know, the, the headquarters in Munich had been raided and yep. it was, they were all kind of yep. focused on, on, uh, the diesel, um, file cabinet, so to speak. Yep. So, uh, and the difference is that is when, when I go to the BMW office and ask for the source code, they don't give it to me. Uh, the, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the police has a different, uh, weird. Yeah. Right, yeah. A different, uh, different approach there. So I'm curious to see, how all that stuff shakes out. But that's, I think, probably the most relevant example I can think of of why um, this stuff is kind of kept as, as you said, a black art um, and why so much reverse engineering is needed because the tools aren't there. You know, if you if you have a standalone ECU in your car um, or, or, or you go and you get the owner's manual, you go, how do I use this? What do I change? What, what does this do? What does this look like? What does this affect? Um, how do these three models work together? And there's documentation for all that stuff. Uh, there's the same documentation on the OEM side. It's just very, very, very hard to get. And a lot of, um, a lot of what I buy, uh, to keep my business running is documentation like that and files like that and things that I can, I can get from certain people who are either kind of backdooring it out of the factory or they've, they've, they've done their own reverse engineering research. And then I can buy some information that gets me further down the road in, in making the car run right. So what is the, uh, 
what is it the day-to-day of a an engine calibration engineer because you you don't live where you work i don't and that's the beautiful thing about uh, about this business uh is i can do a lot of it remotely and um you know the 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 race schedule uh is kind of easier than my normal travel schedule i spent a lot of time out here i've been been in uh orange county doing a whole lot of work here with Um, with vf with vf yes correct Um, and you know, finding the, uh, and is that fine tuning stuff you know, for kits that you, has already been kits of, uh, you know, these, these supercharger kits that have already been sold or you, you're still spending a lot of time developing I am, and, new and, tunes. And a, a big part of their business now under the hex tuning brand is, um, is a lot of, you know, exotic and high end software reflashes. So without hardware, um, and you know, it's, it's funny to see the, the kind of change in the business model once you realize that you don't have to have a huge warehouse full of stuff, you don't have to stock parts, you don't have to buy a bunch of materials, a bunch of you know, a bunch of machines, do a lot of CNC. It's all it's all virtual, right? Um, and the downside of that is all the R and D you have to do on the front end of it to make it to a point where you can then sell it. So we're looking, you know, the stuff I'm working on now, we probably won't be selling for six to nine months, but you have to do that front end of the work, you know, before, um, for for it to kind of take hold and learn what works, learn what doesn't. And that's that drivability stuff. Yeah. And and again, the stuff that doesn't really matter on the racetrack, but the guy, when he sits in the McDonald's drive-thru, if he doesn't like that idle, he's going to let you know about it. So, so is it, would you say that it's almost easier to make the power and make the car faster? And then do you spend more of your time? you know, working on drivability, working on reliability, working on, or is it, is it kind of half and I, half? I usually start with seeing how much it'll make, uh, and see <laughs> how, Turn it to how fast and, it'll go. And then yeah. kind of, you know, backing it down and coming up with a realistic, um, a, a realistic overview of how I want it to run on the street. And do you have a pretty good feeling just based on experience? Do you know, once you kind of start working on, a new file, a new car, a new engine about how hard you can push it safely. Because, you know, like you said, you can't go blowing up customer cars. I mean, what, how do you decide what your threshold is for, for how much margin I guess is, is left um, from the manufacturer versus like, we're lucky, pushing it right we're lucky these days with some pretty amazing technology in these cars. Um, the, the engines themselves are built fantastically. The ECUs that run them are very smart and intelligent. It's really hard to do a lot of serious damage. Um, I'm knocking <laughs> on your, your table here. But yeah. with that said, you always break a couple eggs. Um, but you, you, you're getting enough data out of the car. You're getting enough, you know, you're getting a picture of, is that engine happy? Is the ignition timing efficient? Is the temperatures within control? Can I do this for a little while? Or is it a stoplight to stoplight? That, you know, it's a... Uh, you stress it more than you would as a customer would. And you always want to ha- make sure you've got that, that 10% in reserve. Um, and it, it's, it's a fun process to work through. And, and as, what I love is, you know, you, you mess with computers in other, in other industries and other jobs, and you don't really get a tangible feel to the changes that you're making. You're, you're writing an app, right, or something for your iPhone, and it's, okay, I need to fix this problem or, or do this. But when you're, when you're sitting there in the pit lane, and you're going, wow, that felt really good on that last on that last lap. Something's, something's working here. You get a real immediate, direct kind of seat of the pants. Yeah, okay, this is this is cool. And that's one of my favorite things about this business because when you get to play with something that is very heavy and makes an obnoxious amount of torque, uh, and you get to run around with it and make it better, that's really satisfying. And it's, and you know, I'm sure uh, if you're if you're a web developer and you 
make a nice website. You probably have a nice feeling too, but I guarantee you it's not as exciting. And, uh, and that's what I really enjoy about this stuff. Yeah. Uh, I got, I was lucky enough to do a whole lot of, uh, test driving and validation. Um, I used to work for a company. We had a nice facility in, in West Virginia, uh, right there at Summit Point racetrack. And I mean, the amount of just data collection and laps and just doing the same thing over and over and over and over. I mean, that, that was like kind of the, the ultimate gig. I mean, you had your workstation essentially track side. Yeah. My, I, I could see turn nine from my, from the office window there. Um, it it yeah. wasn't too bad. And, and then you had a literal test track, right? Right outside. I mean, the tra- this is when that you track were with- was, yeah, it was with, uh, with the Revo. Uh, yeah. And then when when Stasis Engineering um, bought those guys, we all we all packed up and went to West Virginia, and um, you learned to talk a little different and speak <laughs> a little slower. But uh, but it was it was a good time, and and that um, that really gave me a good feel for what the car wants from a from a standpoint of real drivability and, and track use. And up to that point, I hadn't really had those resources. You'd go out and you'd. Uh, you'd spend some time in the street and you didn't really have enough room to run it. And, you know, you didn't get enough laps on the car and, um, and you, you know, risk getting tickets. Exactly. And like being able to pull over and just relax for a minute and then go back out there and rip off another 150 mile an hour pass. It's really nice when you don't have to worry about your rear view mirror. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you know, you're logging temperatures, you're logging all this data that is exhaust then, gas temperatures, boost pressures, uh, you know, Lambda readings, uh, intake air temps, coolant temps, oil temps, gearbox temps. I mean, the amount of data that can come off of these cars will show you the entire picture of how the car is running. Um, and it's up to you to sort out, you know, the wheat from the chaff and figure out what is actually relevant to what you're, what you're working on. Right. And, um, th- and in that, I mean, I got, got to imagine that, you know, as well as being able to develop the software at a probably much higher, much, uh, more, uh, or, or much deeper level with that kind of testing, you could also start to figure out weak links in the hardware yes. as well. And that's where we led with a lot of that is we went, Oh man, all that worked on the street, but it sure doesn't work on the track here. And we had a, we were doing a line of hardware at the same time. We were, uh, we were working with Alcon on some brake parts. We were working with Olean's on some on some dampers and uh, Eibach on some springs and sway bars. And um, I'm I never got through. I never have been a race car driver. I know most of I don't fit your mold for this this podcast. Really, uh, there's no mold. There's no, there's no mold. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I I dabble here and there, and I I consider myself a, a, a kind of uh, all right driver, but I'm certainly not a racer. Uh, but what it gave me was a real um, sense of, of how to drive for development instead of just driving um, and, and being able to go out and set a very consistent data lap to get to look at uh, is, is a skill that I developed that I, I, I'm really proud of because it's way different than ripping around as fast as you can possibly go, which is how I thought you used to drive before. I, whenever That's I, how get, I drive. Whenever I went to the track, I'm like, oh, my God, let me just burn it down. Uh, and it took a while <laughs> to really get that under control sure. and, and learn how to do but there's this. a purpose There's to a purpose. Each there's a process, and, yeah. correct. Um, and we developed some pretty cool stuff back then. Um, what, what happened with that whole uh, that whole deal? Oh, man, it was... Uh, so it, so you, just to rewind, you worked for uh, Revo. Revo Technics. So they're, Revo a, they're, Technic, they're, a, they're, a, yeah. they're a UK-based company. Um, they're right there uh, in, in Daventry in the Midlands. It's, it's Motorsport Valley is really what they call it, from Milton Keynes running down through there, right by Silverstone. You've got Pro Drive there. You've got... All the Formula um, One teams. You've got Force India. You've got, exactly. Yeah. Every, it's, it's a fantastic place. Um, Swindon Race Engines was right up the street from us, um, you, and you, a couple Formula Three teams, Formula Two teams, and I mean serious stuff. 
you go out and you go to the fish and chips shop and everybody's wearing team gear. Uh, it, was a, it was a wild place to work because of how'd the, you get hooked up with them? I actually, um, I was selling their stuff uh, for a long time uh, in the States and just kind of worked myself into an engineering role because I kept being obnoxious about it. Uh, and <laughs> There's <laughs> the, a lesson there, kids. There is. Uh, there is. And, and the, the, um, the hard work paid off. And finally, it was like, all right, we'll let you do a little bit of this. And then, uh, it's, man, I was there on and off for almost 10 years. And um, we got acquired uh, by a, uh, a company called Stasis, who, uh, if, if you're listening to this and you've ever had an Audi, I'm sure it rings a bell. Um, and it was just kind of run into the ground with some really bad investments and some bad money and, uh, parted ways. Revo's still doing fantastic. Revo's still around. Yeah, they're still around. Stasis is not so much. Um, and there's a, there's a beautiful building sitting there in West Virginia, uh, waiting for somebody to come make it into the next, you know, amazing trackside test facility. facility. Uh, we had, we had a Mustang in ground dyno there. We had, uh, we had, you know, Rorick shock dyno. We had a transmission dyno. Yeah. So why, why did that all go south? I mean, that, that had so much promise that, you know, when it was, when st- it was a Stasis Revo merger or it was one, one kind of bought out the other. And then it, cause it, from what I remember just again, from the outside was that it was like, Oh, these two really great, you know, well-respected, uh, tuning brands came together and kind of, it was going to be this like super great group. And, and there was like a, you could buy like a Stasis um, power pack or whatever they called it from your dealership. Like you could roll in all these aftermarket upgrades. You could finance all of this stuff right at the dealership level. So you'd buy an R8 or an S4 and you'd walk out with software and exhaust rear sway bar and some, you know, brake rotors and pads and your car was dialed. I mean, we, and that was a Stasis Revo program that, that came together after the, the, the merger. Or correct. After- because they, they always had the hardware game pretty much figured out. Um, and we had the software side and it was a, it was kind of a, a natural progression. Um, but it's, there was more to meet the eye there on, on their end of it. And I'm glad that, you know, Revo's kicking it now. I mean, they're, they're doing awesome. Um, and they're kind of doing their own hardware thing with in-house engineers instead of working with someone else. And, um, it's nice to see that company still thriving despite the, the mess that we went through. But, you know, this business chews people up and spits them out. And, you know, just as well as I do that. Oh, what happened to that race team? Oh, geez. Oh, there's always yeah. something a little, a little strange that can go down. And then you end up, uh, you know, we lost a lot of good people there that didn't deserve to get let go. And there's a lot of talent, uh, that went elsewhere from that program. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, a, it was a, it was a mess for a little while for sure. Copy that. But it, you know, to tell you the truth, it kind of, it kind of spurred me to, to go out on my own and start doing this stuff on my own. Um, and, and, I look back on it as at the time I was like, Oh man, this is it. It's the end of my career. But it actually kind of launched me into do, being able to do something on my own. Um, and yeah, I, I picked up my, I picked up my stuff and moved out to Colorado and, uh, and be- became a pro skier again. Took or- a little year to uh, a year to figure some things out. <laughs> a gap year, a gap year. I, I took a gap year at, at 33. Uh, that's 32. That doesn't, doesn't really happen very often, but I, I pulled it off somehow. Um, and you know, the, kind of gearing my business around being able to do this remotely uh, was really paying off because I don't have a lot of overhead. Um, I've got some good partners that I work with that have uh, fantastic facilities that I can use. And whether it's on a, a barter system for some software or, or you know, some fees, um, I've got a lot of good people I can call up and say, hey, I need to be in, uh, I need to be in Pittsburgh. I've got a couple clients. I need a dyno for three days. And um, the, having that network of, working with this stuff and selling it and, and, and 
being able to use these relationships um, and the and these these networks in my new business really really helped it. Uh, it accelerated the time it took for it to be profitable. And since I'm not paying a mortgage on a dyno and I don't have a huge monthly rent nut with a shop and a bunch of hoists and lifts and techs, I can streamline this stuff and really make it possible for me to do it on my own. Um, and it's also, it frees up you up from a, from a mental standpoint when you don't have the pressure of, I really need to sell X this month or else I'm in trouble. Um, it's, uh, you know, all the hard work's on the front end. And then once it starts rolling, once you have a nice production schedule lined up and you can plan things out and then it becomes easier. But when you're, when you're starting these applications and these brands up, it's, it's a whole lot of work on the front end. Yeah, so I'm, I'm guessing it doesn't always go smoothly. I mean, despite your experience level and kind of knowing what your goal is on like a new car or working with a, one of these turbo or super, sorry, supercharged kits that you know, you've got a lot of now time and experience with, um, you know, what, what are some of the, uh, some of the, the, the stumbling blocks or what, what are some of the things that, that you've dealt with, um, it's I guess, funny I, guess what, I want to know, what, what have you blown up lately? <laughs> that, that's the question Actually, I really want to ask. It's been a long time since I've blown something up, smoky big, you know, parts everywhere and, and, and fluids. Um, like I was saying, it's these days, these cars are pretty much built so well. From a, Unless you're changing the hardware dramatically, it's really tough to blow them up. But um, supercharger would be changing the hardware dramatically, doesn't that? Yeah, so we're, we're, they add about, um, you know, th- these cars, a couple hundred horsepower, another 200 horsepower or so. On a car, you say that as if it's like not a lot. Adding a couple hundred horsepower, tur- to like an R eight or tur- a Lamborghini. Yep, and the turbo guys that are building these cars, those are four or five hundred horsepower added. And a lot of these guys are still running the same engine block and short block. And so are and those hardware. guys still blowing up a lot of stuff? I mean, is that why you guys have focused on the supercharger side? Is it more reliable? Because it's of more reliable. It's more reliable. It's simpler. Um, you know, dealer tech can put it on. Um, it doesn't require any custom tuning or fabrication. You, like I said, you pretty much take it out of the box and bolt it on. And the character of it, I think, really suits the car. The turbo cars, I love the torque and the feel. Uh, and, I mean, you know, the boost comes on in third gear and your face stretches back, and it's it's awesome. But these cars from the factory, the, the normally aspirated V10, is such a linear and smooth, instant response kind of motor. The supercharger doesn't change that at all. So it drives just like a factory R8. But you're 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 smoking the tires. It has tons of mid range torque. It just it it feels like the same car, just kind of cranked up a bit. And that's why I really like it. And that's why they sell the pants off. And we can't keep enough blowers in stock. Really? Yeah. They're they're doing really well with this product. So what is a uh, what is a supercharger kit for a, a new R eight cost? Uh, mid thirties will get you the entire thing turnkey. And that's how much horsepower? Ready to go. Uh, 800 horsepower <laughs> on 91 California <laughs> crappy pump 91. fuel. Right. So, okay. So what's the difference between, uh, you know, how much more do you make on 93 in a normal state? California has some of the worst fuel you're ever going to encounter. Um, Not just because of the octane or because the, the, actually the quality of fuels they, they less cha- out here? So California has some different things with the oxygen content in the fuel and some additives that they use. They call it ACN 91. And if you see 91 elsewhere outside of Colorado, uh, you know, California, New Mexico, there's a lot of the southwestern states, uh, it'll just be plain 91. It won't say ACN. And ACN is like the... This is the California fuel that everybody complains about. Um, but you go to the East Coast, 
And I mean, if you're tuning the car right so that it has some headroom for better fuel, you can pick up 30, 40 horsepower in one of these supercharged cars just by putting a good tank of gas in it. Um, and is that, is that something where like, if I, if I buy one of these cars here and you know, it's tuned for this gas, but I drive it cross country and cross country. And I, I literally just fill it up with a better tank of gas. The car is going to recognize that and give me more power or it yes. actually has to be. Oh, really? Because the, the ECU is very flexible in its, in its ability to go from one you know, horrible case situation. So it recognizes the octane and the quality of fuel. It's constantly monitoring these things and constantly changing and seeing, hey, can I get a little more? Can I get a little more? Oh, nope, that's too much. Okay, this is good. And that's happening tens of thousands of you know times a second while you're driving the car. Um, it's constantly running through these routines and finding finding little ways to make sure it's uh, to make sure it's nice. And Audi's been doing this for a long time. You remember your S4. That thing felt the exact same, no matter if you were in, you know, Key Largo, 100, 100 degree day, super humid and, you know, cold day. Yeah. You know why they, you know how they did that? Bosch Metronic ECU. Magic. Magic. <laughs> and on a hot day down there, your car would run a lot more boost than it would on a cold day. Um, and, it's, and that's all factory programming. These are strategies that these guys are putting in these ECUs to make sure that the performance is consistent. And you don't notice when you have the AC on, you know, you don't notice when you, and, and, and that's again, what these OEM level guys are worried about. They're not worried about that peak power number. They're worried about all the things that their boss says, okay, this has to be the same. And when you go here or you start it here or you're at altitude, it has to run like this. And these are the, the concessions that they have to make with these, with the programming. You know, if you, if you left it up to the calibration guys, every car would be would be cranked <laughs> to the gills, and you know that's, <laughs> you can't do that. So the the, the right. bean counters have to come in and go. It needs to run like this, like this. And you were saying, um, you know, what are some of the challenges when you're developing this stuff? Half of it is figuring out how you want it to run. You know, so a lot of that, you know, a lot of how that runs, a lot of that, a sales that personality it's a marketing is, decision. How right. do you want this stuff to work? But so and, a lot of the personality then of the car is, is kind of in your hands. It is. It is. And, you know, you see a lot of the stuff that these guys are doing now, these these new Jags and the Mercedes, and they all go, wah, bah, 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 you know, and get off the gas. Yeah, and it's make awesome. All the cool, it's awesome, right? <laughs> and that's that. That's not. Um, Can you do that to my diesel wagon? I can't do that to your diesel wagon, unfortunately. What if I had a gas wagon? Yeah, I could do that to your gas <sighs> wagon. All right. See, you know this diesel thing again. Mm, I should consult you before I buy my next car. You never care what I think. No, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and um, all these decisions um, to make a car sound like that, they didn't come from the, the calibration guy. They came from a guy that says, we need a little more noise to sound like it's cool. And then the sales department goes, okay, how are we going to do this? And then eventually somewhere down the road. And then the calibration guy goes, what? Yeah, what? he's like, you want, what? Me, you you want, want to do, do what? what? You want me to spend this much time making some stupid sound? You know, it's... It's funny because um, it, the same thing's happening now in streetcar customers where you're starting to hear these from the OEM. And, I mean, geez, all my BMW guys now are all over it. They they want that burble. They want that sound. And they don't. They honestly care less if it's any faster. <laughs> but, hey, whatever sells. You know, you got to give give the people what they want. Yeah, yeah. So you, you just talked about a moment ago about kind of the differences at, at altitude and and uh, you know the different scenarios of you know fuel and East Coast West Coast the the kinds of considerations that you take into uh, into account when you're when you're doing this kind of work um, you know one of the projects that you worked on was uh, a Pike Speak car yes was that last year that was two talk, oh my god that was two years two years ago, ago? yeah um, so talk about the the Pike Speak Audi 
so this was um, this kind of came together completely last minute um, as these programs usually do. Because you're wait, let's let's introduce this right away. You're a Pikes Peak record holder tuner. P- Pikes Peak P- record holder tuner. And record record holding front, front wheel drive record holder. I'm gonna put in a, like a clap, yeah, yeah, clap nobody, track right here. Right, nobody cares about that. Uh, <laughs> so good old Rob Holland, a mutual friend of us both. Yeah. Um, Hi Rob. Hi Rob. He, he's not he's, listening. He, no, no, he's listening. He's got this uh, this crazy VLN TTRS, and uh, you you actually you know more about this car than I do from a from where it races standpoint. It's it was built specifically for the the, the race series at the Nurburgring, right? The VLN. Yeah, series. so I, I know a little bit about it. I mean, actually, I think I think Carl Thompson of Compass Three Hundred and Sixty owns that car. <laughs> don't think, re- don't remind him. I think it's actually like sitting an hour south of here in uh, in Carl's. Uh, Southern California uh, shop, but um, yeah, really, really cool car. It was kind of a predated the R8 GT3 car, um, and it was this pet project from this guy. I'll, I'll have to have Carl on here, and, and he'll he'll explain uh, the the real backstory behind this thing. But it was a, a VLN, you know, Nurburgring special, and the thing like just ripped. It was super, super fast, um, and it it was at at some tracks in some conditions faster than the GT3 car, and. Once they built the GT3 car, I was like, well, we, we can't really have right. a cheaper, you know, different car be faster than our, our you know, uh, our marquee. And then they had to get some calibration guy to turn it down. <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, so this car, this TTRS, um, you know, Audi stopped kind of officially supporting it, but it's still a great race car. Um, and um, and a, another one of our, uh, one of my guests, David Telenius. Uh, actually drove that car a couple times at the Nurburgring uh, and just raved about it. You know, front wheel drive, but huge downforce, great power, great chassis, and uh, that car found its way over to the U.S. and Rob took it up Pike's Peak. And, let me, and let's just back up for a second. So, <laughs> yeah, please, please do. <laughs> so you have a car that's designed to go very fast on a nice, you know, a beautiful racetrack that your corner speeds are pretty high at. Right. Very high, actually. Right. And you're now asking that same car to go from a standing start and rip up to the top of the highest paved road in North America. Yeah. Um, where you're 25, 30 miles an hour through some of these corners. No, some of these little hairpins. It, yeah. It, it's just unbelievable. It just doesn't want to do it. Um, and super bumpy at the top. Super I mean, bumpy. I've driven up Pikes Peak in my streetcar a couple of years ago, and I was. I mean, granted, it's all paved now, and we're all wussies, and you know, because the people who race up now are wusses, because you know, it, it, it's it's not a dirt road like it used to be, but but it is what it is, and it's not it's not an easy place to drive. I mean, or even walk around at the top. I mean, it's like fourteen, uh, for, yeah, fourteen thousand, fourteen thousand, three hundred. I, I don't remember I mean, exactly what it is. When we got to the top, though, it's like you get out, and there's like a little cafe, and you can like walk around, but it's it's like it's hard to breathe up there. It's impossible to breathe up there. Um, and I was living in Breckenridge at the time. So it's, it was hard for me, us so to I'm, breathe. I'm coming from 10,000 feet. I'm sleeping at 10,000 feet. Imagine I'm still getting a little woozy up there. Um, and So what does that do to a car? Well, that's the thing. Um, the car is not meant for this stuff. When you are running at little turbocharged motor at the top of that mountain, you're at the complete opposite end of the compressor map for that turbo than you want to be. Um, it's not happy. It doesn't like it. You're struggling to make the same kind of power you were making, even two, three thousand feet below. Um, and a lot of that was just basically seeing. There's a lot of safeguards in these ECUs to keep components intact, called component protection. So you model the turbine speed, 
you put that in a map and then you say, here's what is acceptable or here's what we think is, is going to be all right. And then the ECU will do its best at the expense of a lot of things, including limp mode, including closing the throttle, reducing the boost to keep that turbocharger safe. And so first, that, that all goes right out the window as soon as you <laughs> need to start doing something like this. And um, luckily, the, everything held together, and, and Rob gave it a hell of a drive. I mean, the, the in-car is ridiculous. He's arm over arm, like completely crossed up and still not making the apex of the corner because the car just is not set up for this stuff. Um, really hard to get heat in the tires. Everybody's using tire blankets. Um, it's just the conditions in that race are crazy, man. I, I, I'm so uh, impressed with the teams that go there and just dominate because it's impossible to dominate that place. It's just sure. it's and, nasty. And what you see a lot of nowadays is is the the teams that are really going for it um, in terms of overall you know wins and, and setting new records. It's it's electric. Oh. And I watched I watched the Honda guys roll these these NSXs out with all the hybrid all the hybrid stuff in it. Yeah, and you used to, you used to think like, oh, it makes sense at altitude you want a turbo because right. a natural aspirated car will just you know run out of steam. There's exactly, just, there's just no air up there. You can't make power. And an so, electric car will run out of steam at that altitude, but it only has to do it for a short period of time. So it's like the perfect thing for well, a hill climb car. What What do you mean that will run out of steam? Like, well, it'll run. I mean, you can't like so electric cars that are not going to make a good. Uh, a good Nurburgring car, right? What do you get? Two laps, and then, and then. Oh, right, okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. the hill climb, you have a very small window of where this thing has to work, right? And and how it accelerates, and and you can you can sit but, but there. But it, it doesn't lose performance the higher up you get. The way a natural aspirated car does, or even the way it, a turbo car does, to it, a certain it does degree. not do to the altitude. I'm sure that as the motors get hot and the batteries get hot, it starts. Sure. You know, it has its own loses performance for other. Correct. Reasons. It has its own kind of set of problems that it might it might encounter at that event. But it's certainly not not been able to breathe because no. it doesn't have to breathe. And I think that's the future of that race. And especially looking from a manufacturer perspective, all these um, – this is something else I wanted to get into because it makes, it makes me – Yeah, it just, it's a good transition. I it think. makes me super sad to see Mercedes pulling out a DTM um, and, and all these companies putting all their eggs in the Formula E basket and the – um, well, so where, where does somebody like you stand on? I mean, is there, is there room within the electric car, uh, drivetrain or, or those ECUs? There are to, probably to more tune? software guys working on that kind of stuff, uh, than you would see in your average, in your average world challenger empathetic. I mean, they're, they're, there's so but much at technology the, going at the OEM level. For oh, sure. the OEM level, yeah, for sure. But but I mean, I'm talking about is there an, is there an aftermarket? Is there going to be a, a Tesla, you know, aftermarket? Out, I want my P90 or P100D with Insanity mode to be faster than my neighbor's P100D with Insanity mode. I'm going to come to Robin Romish and Course Logic Tuning to like tune my Tesla. Is that a is that the future of? <laughs> Engine yeah, calibration I mean, or since since cars have been since cars have been you know a, a three speed transmission and and a big block V eight that makes one hundred and ninety horsepower everybody's always tried to mess with this stuff because you always want a little bit more you always want to be better than your your neighbor or your friend or whatever can you those Teslas have LTE data on them they've got a SIM card in them they talk back to home base all the time you get over the air software updates in your garage while you're sleeping. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have an answer for you, I, but I, I'm just a little bit um, sad 
to see this internal combustion stuff start to, at least in racing, you start to see it go, well, maybe this is not going to be as long as I thought this stuff would hang on. I mean, hmm. I always thought it wouldn't be in my lifetime, you know? And yeah. we've got cars. Cars it's, cars it's, run on gas. Cars make noise. Uh, and now we're, we're really getting there. The battery technology is going crazy. You've now got Formula E where next year they're not going to have two cars anymore. You don't have to get out of your damn race car and do another race car, which I think is the most asinine thing in the world. Um, it's to me, it's not a good show, but at the same time, I see the level of engineering and involvement going on and the yeah. amount of work that they're doing with these cars. I'm actually more okay with the formula E stuff. It's like, you can't, you can't quite fight the technology right? and the, you know, the OEMs have, have decided to invest in it and, and they're putting money in it. So whether you and I like it or not, it's, it's going to be around and it's going to continue it's, to it's get back better to the same oem right. road car relevance bullshit that the f uh, sorry can i swear on this can is yeah, that, yeah okay. go nuts oh, uh, road car relevance bullshit that the fia has been you know harping on for years and years and years okay so mercedes they have a hybrid in formula one do you care if your mercedes streetcar has anything to do with that hybrid well i mean do I care? No. Is but, it is it really relevant? Though? But but you're the, developing technologies. But the Mercedes board who approves the five hundred well, million dollar budget. Here we are cares. back to why did that race team disappear? Well, right, <laughs> <laughs> right. So money makes the world go round. We all know that. I, I guess where the point I was getting at it was like, look, the, the Formula E is here to stay. The manufacturers are dumping money into it. It you know it's the only race series in the world where every single driver is paid to be there. So I look at it from a driver's perspective of. You know, the the money's there. The the teams um, are are putting lots of development in. It's not totally spec anymore. So it's, you're you're seeing it's thriving. You're dude. seeing huge development. The, is the show as good as other uh, race series? No, I, I don't think it is. I mean, I, I was at the the Brooklyn uh, the New York race last year. I was actually working. I was you know with BMW. We were giving hot laps to VIPs and the track itself was pretty fun to drive. I've I got to do some, you know, a bunch of laps uh, throughout the weekend in a in a BMW i8. Um, it was uh, it was a multicolor uh, i8, wasn't it? They're it was all, blue. They're all was, they're all multicolor. Wasn't it? Didn't it have another color on there somewhere? Uh, no, you don't know what I'm talking what, about. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm not going to give you the credit of of admitting to it. Um, um, but but my I guess my my point is so okay. Look, that that's all fine and dandy. The one thing that I wanted there there was a tent at that race there with another car in it that I wanted to burn to the fucking ground was the Robo Race. Oh car God, yeah, they did. I know. A, that's that's a whole another. A uh, they did a, a demonstration run of this fully electric race car with no driver in it, and to me that is I I don't I don't think there's any place for that. I'm not cool with that. I technology is fine whatever like cute but like uh, no 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 i i, I, I have absolutely no interest in watching something that's not it's a giant remote control it's a remote car. control car there's no yeah. there's no skill here there's no chance yeah. or luck it's following a program it's following its own its own software yeah and and when i and the reality of that is actually that technology might have the most trickle down actual road car relevance of road car relevance of you know self-driving cars because that that's the way things are going um if they ever figure out you know how to do it safely and and you know there's certainly a lot of hurdles um you know legally and morally and ethically in in that whole world of self-driving uh cars and technology and that robo race thing you know, may, may actually, actually be, be yeah, the most road relevant sure. over the next five or 10 years. For sure. I don't know, but I, I just hate the concept of, uh, 
of a, uh, a driverless race car. That, that's a totally, a total oxymoron to me. Um, I would love to work in Formula E. I would love to be involved with this kind of stuff because of the, like you said, the resources that's being invested in it. And you see, I mean, I, I sit on these, uh, these little motorsport job boards, right? You, um, race staff and all these other ones where they list all these open positions at various places, and I'm always scrolling through and, and looking for stuff. Dude, it's like half Formula E now. They want battery guys. They want motor guys. They want uh, simulation guys, you know, model guys, all this stuff that is still very relevant from an engineering standpoint. It's still a race car. You still got to make it go faster than the guy next to you in the pit stall. Um, but you lose, in my opinion, some of the spectacle and some of what makes you show up to these races when the cars go by you and all you hear is the stupid Michelin Street car t- tire working. Well, and then they sound like, you know, souped up golf carts. Yeah. Oh, here's a gearbox. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's it's not my thing. The the show is lacking. And, you know, the the fact that the cars are, you know, as of next year, you're not going to have to switch cars halfway through the race because the batteries will last longer. The the technology is advancing at a pretty rapid rate. And so, you know, I'm with Formula E, I don't. I, I try not to be such a hater because yeah. I, th- I think it is getting there yeah. and, and whether we like it or not. I think Formula E is relying a lot on the technology to be the spectacle rather than the actual race itself and the drivers. Um, and, I, and it's funny because it's like the absolute antithesis of NASCAR, right? And I'm always I'm a big defender of NASCAR because everybody that sees it on TV once or twice thinks they, thinks they know what's going on there. Oh, they're turning left. They're driving around. And it's the complete opposite. That is spectacle. That is noise and smell and just an awesome, awesome show. There's still a ton of technology and engineering going on in that series, more so than, than you would imagine. And then I think Formula E is kind of the background. They're, they're the, the flip side of that, where they're going, hey, look at all this cool technology stuff we're doing with all these amazing new materials and these computers. and the, But then the show's not that really good. It's attention span and, and this and that and but at, at the end of the day i think it's a lot easier to get a, a young fan who might be buying a toyota or a bmw or something in the next 10 years hooked on cars and these brands and their and their marketing if he's going oh my god that was awesome and I, don't, right. I don't really think you get that without without that that show yeah i think i mean i think one of the few places that still does that really well is uh formula drift you know, talk yes. about yes. really cool cars, really interesting, you know, home-built, home-tuned. You know, everybody's got a different concept. Some cars are all motor. Some cars are big nitrous. Some yep. cars are, you know, forced induction. Yep. Um, and they're all, there's no, nothing electric electric there yet. As as an engine guy? And from the spectacle. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, I, for, so, dude. I mean, <laughs> from your point so of view, I watched that's got to be the coolest thing ever. I watched, I remember my first you know, drift event I was at. Uh, was Formula D in Road Atlanta, and and wh- when was this? Oh man, this was like 2013, okay, or so. And I just remember watching these cars go by, and I have like mechanical sympathy, like when <laughs> when something is just obviously so irritated and angry with what it's you know being subjected to, I kind of feel it a little bit. And I I was listening to these cars rip by fourth gear. In the limiter, 8,000 RPM, rear diff going God knows what. Uh, and these things, are, and they're just, they're holding up. And these guys are doing race after race after race. Dude, those conditions don't exist 
in anything else than that sport, you're not even going straight, right? You're going sideways. So your radiator is pointed 90 <laughs> degrees to where the airflow is coming. It's just, it's wild. And, and yeah. from, an, from an engine guy's standpoint, that stuff always makes me scratch my head at how they make those things stay together in that kind of environment. I but, just I just saw a video, and I'll have to I'll have to find it and show it to you, of a um, like a 240 with a Tesla drivetrain, like a 240 drift car with a Tesla drivetrain earlier today. I'm looking at it, I'm going, I, I don't, I can't decide if I like this. I can't decide if this is cool or not. Again, it's, it's, like, it's the perfect tool for the job. It's instant torque. It's gobs of it, and yeah. you can use it. But is it the perfect tool? It's quiet. Uh, have you ever seen a Tesla do a burnout, by the way? Uh, no. It's, fan- it's fantastic. So. Aren't they all all-wheel drive, though? I guess you could do a burnout if you have uh, there's some way. I, I've seen a, there's some way to get it done. Let me, I'll just I'll put it that way. <laughs> okay. And it's the weirdest noise, the weirdest sound, because all you hear is tire. And it's like you never hear a burnout where all you hear is tire, and it's a really interesting kind of kind of kind of thing. But I, I can't imagine it would make for a good drift show. Huh? Interesting. Yeah. Now I I mean that that's kind of what I love about Formula Drift, just as a, a an outsider from you know the the spectacle. I've I've been a fan. I've I've I know some of the drivers involved, and I I think it's just awesome. You know that all of these drift cars, there's a different philosophy to each one. You know, each brand has its own approach to you know, being competitive, making the power. And they're all, I mean, talk about making power. They're all like, you know, pushing thousand horsepower. Um, there's no real rule. I mean, there's no real rule book on, or, or, uh, constraints on how you can do it. And that to me is one of the most beautiful parts of that series is that's one of the only places left at a top level, uh, professional series where it's like, you know, run what you brung, you know, go as nuts as you can go. It's all about the show. And my favorite part of it is it's judged like figure skating, where okay, at so, the end of the day, it's not about who's the fastest or something really <laughs> tangible. And the engineers are favorite part. You're not being sarcastic. No, I'm are really you? not because it, it just it opens the door to this like like you said the show. And if you sit there and you go backwards into the dude you're racing against, and everybody <laughs> goes, yeah, you're probably gonna win. And I think that's cool because it's a different it's a different side of racing and I know it's not racing, but it's, it's still motorsports. Yeah. Um, and I think there's room for that for sure. And, and, and I mean, you judging by the success of it, look at it. It's everybody loves that stuff still. Yeah. I thought it was a fad. I thought it was going to be going away and it's, it's not. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you think about, it, I mean, it's like, yeah, it, it's the most fun thing we do in cars is like sliding around and exactly. being, being driving like dickheads. Driving like, like yeah. Oh wait, you know, these guys just figured out how to do that and, and make money at it and like make it a, into a real sport. So, so kudos to them. I'm, I'm a fan and, and I, uh, I'm a fan of not only the, the sport and the, uh, what they've done with it, but just of the whole concept and, and the way that they, they run the series. So the, the antithesis to, uh, all yeah. this other formula spec, you yeah, know, electric, exactly. electric stuff crap and, we've been talking about. Um, so where where do you think the future of of racing is going? You know, I I, I don't want to sacrifice the experience um, for for the te- for the gain in technology for this perceived and and I'm a pretty progressive minded guy. I mean, I, I think that we have to do what we can to you know not totally destroy the planet. I mean, I you know, so I, I'm, I'm right I'm, there with you. I, I love the outdoors. I love being able to go and and ski on cold snow in the middle of the winter and. Th- we do need to look at at this stuff and right that impact matters it but, does matter but what it matters a lot what we do you know the the experience of of driving and of of motorsport i mean that's that's something that i discovered at a, at a young age and went how do i do this and, yep. and i love 
what I do. And I love being able to, to drive a car to its limits and, and slide it around and be competitive. And that it's, you know, I, I can go out and drive these homologated GT4 cars or TCR cars or GT3 and, and we bang into each other and it's full throttle and it's, it's using up the tire, using up the brake. Yep. And there's, you know, I'm, you know, at the end of a good race, I'm exhausted. And, and it's like, that was awesome. Awesome. And that experience, when I first, first experienced driving at the limit. What was your, I, what was your first track day? When was the first time you got uh, in something where it was, you were actually <laughs> trying to go fast? Um, so the first track day was, so my, my Audi S4, which was my dad's car before. Best track mine. day car ever. <laughs> not, <at all. laughs> not even close, but, uh, it was actually at Homestead Miami Speedway. Cause I, I grew up in the keys and I uh, convinced my dad, at, I think it was 15 to, uh, to go to a chin motorsports event. And I had, I didn't know my, you know, I didn't know an apex for my, um, and it, it, it changed my life. And yep. it was like, this is the greatest thing ever. I was so slow. I was, I, I didn't know what I was doing at all, yep. but the experience of going full th- from full throttle to full brake to as fast as I could through a turn to back to full throttle to f- as fast as I grew through just this whole concept of, you know, I, w- I wasn't like stoplight to stoplight racing my, bu- my high school buddy in his right. Mustang exactly. in my dad's car. It I mean, was not like, that that ever happened. Never, no, never, never, never. I think the statute of limitations is probably up on that stuff. I'm sure it but, is. So, so the, but the concept of, okay, I can go out there for 30 minutes and burn down, you know, half a tank of fuel and going as fast as I can, giving maximum effort and, and sucking at it the first time I did it. But this concept of, man, this is awesome. The noise I'm, I'm hearing the tires, I'm, I'm smelling the brakes, the, ex- the exhaust on that car on the, the turbocharged S4, you know, t- the B5 chassis car. You know, it sounded awesome and I had no idea what I was doing, but I fell in love with the process and the, the actual, um, you know, the experience, the experience. of driving. It's visceral. So, it's, it's a, it's a yeah. body feeling that you don't get yeah, in, it, in, it's, in much it's, stuff. It's, it's, it's all the senses at once. And yeah. so that, that's where I guess, you know, you asked, where's the future? I, I don't know where the future is going. I just, I hope that we don't sacrifice that experience for, um, for the, the progression of technology or, or the, the idea of, um, you know, that it all has to be about reducing emissions or right. I mean, that there has to be a balance there. So how do, how do people find you? I mean, what's your, you've got your, this industry is small enough. I mean, you know, this, you, you meet the same people, you see the same people. Um, I mean, how these, these world challenge weekends that I just started coming to again after a couple year hiatus, I love it. You just you walk through the paddock and you see a lot of people you haven't seen in a while. It's mostly the same faces, and um, you know word gets around, uh, and you can you can find me at CourseOfLogic dot com. There you go. Let's <laughs> see. I'm bad took at you an this. hour and a half to plug yourself. I'm bad at this. Uh, I do the Twitter thing more as entertainment than anything else, and, yeah, and I, too. I find a lot of um, there's some really interesting stuff on there from a from a discussion standpoint. I always end up retweeting the stupid shit, but if you really look deep down into Twitter. Don't, I, I don't find do it that. I, yeah. I find um, that to I'm be a huge at, waste of time at our Romish. Uh, if you're so inclined there, uh, and, um, at our Romish at our Romish course, logic.com And, uh, if you're at the world challenge weekends, you're wearing the, what the Volkswagen shirt. I'm wearing the Volkswagen, uh, Audi. Audi sport shirt. Correct. Yeah. I'm, I'm tending to, uh, for the rest of the season, at least, uh, tending to all the Volkswagen uh, TCR cars, and uh, so buy a Volkswagen TCR car. Robin will 
tune it. For, no, you can't tune it. I Robert, can't tune it. I will, I will support it I will, I will it help you. you with the setup. I'll help you find the window it works in. I'll help you find, you know, the, how to take it out and, and make it work. I'll help you with the service intervals and what you need to do and what you need to watch out for. And, um, you know, like I said, it's, I think there's a, there's still a need for um, someone to look at these cars and help you if you're having some struggle, whether that's from a, a engine side or not. Um, a lot of these guys, they need that. They've not run one of these before. There's little idiosyncrasies they need here and there. Um, you know, we've got a, it's frustrating right now in TCR, just the, you know, we, we're kind of racing for fourth. Um, you've got a whole lot of factory involvement and, and some rules that don't really, don't really make sense. Ooh, but, talk about that. Um, we've got some, some small teams running certain cars and then we've got some massive factory efforts running certain other cars. Um, and it's a real challenge cause you have one set of Would rules. Would you say it's a world challenge? I'd say it's a world-class challenge. <laughs> um, you have a lot of different kinds of teams running these cars and sure. But isn't the, isn't the thought that like, Hey, they're, it, they're homologated and they're homologated, which the, means you can't really mess with the BOP too much. And so are you, are you saying that maybe the BOP or the homologation is a little off on some cars? That would be, that would be putting it lightly. I'd say, um, we have an awesome race from fourth to 10th. I mean, Lime Rock, we had bump drafting. We had two, three wide of these cars. I mean, there was just awesome racing, but that's not what you really saw on TV. And that's not what was winning the race. And we kind of have two, uh, we've got a factory camp and a kind of, you know, not amateur camp. I don't want to say amateur. A lot of these guys are very smart with what they do. They just don't have the really the resources to pour it in. And yeah, I mean, sure. you know, you, you can't show up with two or three spare motors if something happens or or, or the the most expensive guys sitting on the pit box and uh it's 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 showing in the in the racing. Um and it's it's uh it, it's frustrating for, for me to have to kinda, you know, have these conversations um about it. I wanna be I wanna be racing for the win, I don't want to be racing the fourth. Yeah. But I think we're going to see some interesting things with 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 SRO and, and World Challenge here. It's a it's a huge th- uh, thing to bite off, man. Having one set of rules for a car that's way, raced all around the world. That's make it work with the different cultures and the drivers and the tracks and the, it's it's a huge effort. Um, sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it a little yeah, wrong. Yeah, it's, it's a process. And that pendulum might swing the other way, and we'll I'll be saying, hey, this feels great standing on the podium. There'll be somebody else bitching about it. So it's you know it's. The way that's the, the way, uh, uh, the the way, way the cookie crumbles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. what else? What else? What else? No, I, I think I'm gonna call it. Yeah, dude, yeah I, I think I got... we've we've kind of we've kind of covered it.